Well, good morning again. <clears throat> For those of who, who, you who don't know me, my name is Betty, and I am one of the pastors on staff here at Crosswinds. And I wanted to give you a little update on Craig this morning. He's doing great, but last week you heard him talk about uh, upcoming surgery. Well, that surgery happened uh, last Wednesday. He's not here with us this morning, but he hopes to be back um, next week, and he's uh, healing really well and excited about that. So I just wanted you to know, because he had mentioned it, uh, that he's doing great, and he appreciates those prayers and comments and notes uh, that he's gotten about uh, this, this surgery and this healing process. So thank you so much. So he'll be back with us next week. But I get the privilege now to move back into the book of Titus. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, and I love this book. I am learning so much through this book. If you haven't been here with us in this series, I encourage you to go back and look up some of the teachings that have already taken place. The book of Titus is a short letter, right? It's just three chapters, and it's written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, who is one of the leaders in the church, and also Paul's, um, somebody that Paul is mentoring in the process. Now, the letter primarily focuses on guidance for church leadership, on godly living for the community of believers, and Paul teaches us essentially then what it means to live like we are the church, different than what you might see out there in other communities or other areas. We are taught the importance of living in a healthy community, which requires that we live in healthy relationships with one another. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, living in healthy relationships. And how do we do that? And what does Paul say about that in church leadership? How does that come together? So as I prepared for this message today, I was reminded about the enormous impact that relationships have on our lives. Family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. And if you think back to some of your most fond memories, your most important memories, they will include memories of people, right, and of relationships, right? It's not things that we do alone. But likewise, if you look back on some of the more difficult times in your life, they also involve relationships. Now, we were created to be in relationship with one another. In fact, when we find ourselves isolated or um, alone, things start to go wrong. And it's reminiscent of God's word in the garden right from the very beginning. What did he say? It isn't good for man to be alone. So we are not intended to live in isolation. So I did a little research on the effects of isolation. And those of you in the medical community, I hope you'll agree with me. Um, it leads to loneliness, obviously. And this is what the CDC wrote. They said it leads to cardiovascular problems. It leads to dementia. It leads to anxiety. So many other things I can't mention. And it leads to a decreased lifespan. Isolation is not a good place to be. And God planned it differently for us. Relationships are a part of our DNA, are a part of how we were created. And they require us now to step outside of ourselves. You can't be in relationship alone. They require us to step outside of ourselves and care authentically about someone else. So how do we get there? Well, I think it must start with our designer. It must start with the one who had the plan from the start for our lives. It must start with God. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, relationships are the hallmark of the Christian faith. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others should be a driving force behind all that we do. Now, Graham's words are powerful, and they should cause us to want to pay attention to what Paul teaches us in Titus about this very important, this pivotal topic, relationships. 
So we're going to dig right into our passage this morning. Again, we're in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 8. And as before I start, i got to say, I think this is essentially the gospel message. So if there was ever a day to come to church and hear the basics of the Christian faith, this is one of those days. Paul begins by teaching Titus, again, his protege, how to guide those in his congregation as they learn how to interact in a healthy way with one another. This is what he says. He says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others <clears throat> and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, quite a lot in those eight verses. This passage encourages us what we should be doing, right? Believers should obey authorities. They should be kind and considerate. They should be gentle to others. They should remember God's grace in their lives. Focus on doing good deeds. We should be focused on those things. But it also teaches us what we should not do. It emphasizes the importance of avoiding quarrels and warns us not to speak evil of others. I look at this passage and I realize Paul is referring not only to personal transformation, but also to community transformation. Because when transformation occurs in a person, right, when transformation occurs in you or in me, it has a significant impact on those who are closest to the change, doesn't it? Of course it does. You never cause good or unfortunately harm without having an impact on those around you. So I have to pause here for just a minute as we consider that we have all been on both sides of those statements, right? We have all caused and also been the one impacted by both good and harm. But here's the key to it all. We can't remain in either place too long because that's not how life works. We can't sit there um, in the midst of the struggle or in the midst of even the best of times. We are always moving forward in the timeline of change. The goal is to learn and grow as we go. Would you agree? We've got to learn and grow as we go. And God's grace is the driving force guiding that learning process in our lives. So we're going to take a deeper dive into this passage. We're going to start right with verses 1 and 2. Again, it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So Paul begins this verse by addressing proper conduct toward the authorities. Notice that Paul begins with the word remind. In other words, this is not new advice. It isn't the first time that people have heard this. This is basic Christian teaching. Paul instructs Titus to remind people to be submissive to rulers and to authorities. Paul teaches Christians that they're to be good citizens without, however, 
compromising their faith. Now, in the early church, there were many unbelieving people surrounding Christians or believers. They were already disobeying the law, right? So Paul says, don't be like that. Be different. Christians must submit to authority, and they should cooperate with all the matters that are involving the whole community. We should be a part of that. Now, as believers, we may be looking forward to that future kingdom in heaven, but we are not absolved from the responsibilities as citizens here on earth. So there's a danger, however, in looking at a passage like this and recognizing that it can also be misused. So let me warn you, being subject to authorities does not mean we don't question their decisions. Being subject to authorities does not mean that we don't raise our voices in protest to actions and decisions that are unjust and unfair. And I think the most difficult part of that is that we can't simply react on emotion because our emotions at any given time can mask us from seeing the real truth that is happening out there. So we have to be careful when we follow those ideas. We must react on the truth in a manner that honors the authority, in a manner that honors the sovereignty, and in a manner that honors the word of God. So when the demands of those in authority contradict the demands of the kingdom of God, the believer has no choice but to take a costly stance, oftentimes, to speak out, whether it means ostracism, whether it means punishment, exile, and in the case of the apostles, even death. We must step out. So review, what is this first part of this verse teaching? We must obey those in authority, in authority unless they disobey our God. So let's look at it this way. Rather than spending loads and loads of energy focusing on how I can get around the, those in authority, how I can get around obedience, maybe we could spend some of that energy focusing on how to help someone else. Wouldn't that be a better place to spend some of that energy, which leads us to the next part of the passage. The second part says that it goes on to teach us to focus on helping others through good works in our community. Believers should be quick to join an opportunity to do good. I think all you need to do is watch the input, impact that that good has on those around you and you'll be hooked. Hooked on doing good rather than focusing on something that is outside currently at least of your control. Paul continues in verse two to speak a proper conduct towards all people. So how do we treat people? Even in this book of leadership, he says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, he says. And I looked up this idea of gentle and what the term means and Wearsby wrote this, he's a, he's a commentator and he said, gentle means an attitude of moderation, a sweet reasonableness. I love the way that that's defined, a sweet reasonableness reasonableness. The quality does not insist on my way, but rather is willing to compromise where no moral issue is at stake. He goes on. He says we're to show courtesy. So how do believers reflect authentic, caring relationships? As Paul writes in Titus, he says to reflect courteous consideration to all people. All people, which means at all times, which means under all circumstances. Christians are to be an influence for good by doing good. We are to be peaceable and considerate to those around us. 
Now, it's an attitude of a very tall order, isn't it? I'm trying to think back on just my morning, right? It is only possible with genuine humility. And that doesn't mean thinking lowly of yourself, but rather it just means thinking highly of others. That's humility. Because Paul reminded them, listen, it wasn't long ago that you were there yourself. Remember your former state. Listen to verse 3 in Titus. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I read that and I'm like, wow, I don't know who Paul is talking about, but it is not me, right? (laughs) Wrong. Let's look. Again, Paul is reminding his readers, don't be too critical of those unbelievers around you. Just remember you were there once too. And as we look at this list, I think we can wrongly assume that this sin, this unrighteousness, are defined only as outward acts. Only as things that we see happen, things that people might do. But that's not correct. Because I don't remember passing my day in malice and envy all the time. And then I was thinking I was on 490. That could have been part of it. The Bible's teaching penetrates the outer appearance and it dives deep into the inner recesses of our very being. Sin is not a matter of destructive or unacceptable just outward behavior. That's not all it is. It's a matter of an inner attitude within us. In fact, it very much begins and matures with that inner attitude. It begins with my motive. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Matthew 12, 34, 36. Listen to this verse. This is Jesus as he speaks against the rulers who were leading people astray in the the early church. He says, you brood of vipers. That's a little strong. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the motive, the root, speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. It's a matter of the heart. As long as we major in only those outward aspects, we'll never understand where it all comes from. We'll never understand the root, the real inner nature in our hearts that are causing these negative reactions. We must address the heart if we're going to transform the outward action, which is why we need a savior, amen? (laughs) One who plans and includes that work of transformation in each of our lives. Because in Jesus, we are a new creation. That's an interesting terminology, isn't it? Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what does that mean? It means those old go-to reactions that I had, right? start to change. Maybe I will be nicer on 490. I start to reflect an attitude, a motive, a heart of humility, of love for others, and a desire to share that hope now with those who cross my path. We are created beings, right? So the new creation is beginning to take shape, and it changes us right from the inside out, right at the root 
of our being. Because when I open my life up to Christ, he guides the work of transforming me from the inside out, from the root, from the heart, transforming my attitudes, changing my direction toward his purpose, toward his kingdom. I am created anew. Let me pause. I am not created. I'm not perfect, right? If you, my family is here. Many people are here. I'm not perfect. They can attest to that. But moving in a positive direction on that timeline of change is my goal. My goal is to be able to move forward and learn from the things that I have, um, that I have done, that I've participated in. And it's all through God's grace. Grace is defined as receiving what we don't deserve. Grace. Titus verses uh, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, the verse starts. God's love for us appeared in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Isn't that the epitome of amazing grace? That amazing grace in our Lord and Savior. A love that sent Jesus to take our penalty. Jesus, perfect in every way, took our guilt and our sin so that we could be declared innocent. Someone had to pay the price. And so Jesus saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Jesus saves us according to his own mercy. His own mercy, his own grace, not getting what we do deserve. We could not achieve salvation by our own good works. But I thought about that. Imagine if that was how it worked. We could simply do it on our own by trying our own to do better and better and better. That would lead me to anxiety, to t I'd be tense, fearful, um, struggling, all of those things, thinking that I had to do it on my own, always worried if I was enough. Would we be fighting with each other for the top spot? I imagine. Would we be focused on I can do better than you attitude? And isn't that not a positive in our relationship. Remember, we were created for relationships. Those relationships would never be authentic. Why would we need a God who saves us if we can earn it on our own? We can't. That isn't how it works. It isn't about what I can do, but it is about what Jesus has already done for each and every one of us. It was about Jesus taking our penalty an act that only a perfect savior could achieve on our behalf. It is all about God from the start to the finish. So to put it differently, we are not saved by good works, but we are for good works. And the good works Paul mentions in these verses are an outward expression of the fact that we have been saved by grace. How can we not show that courtesy, that love, that respect to others? This verse is reminding Paul's readers of some of the most basic Christian doctrine. Paul says, Jesus saves us by the washing of regeneration, regeneration, it's even a hard word to say at times, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
This terminology that Paul uses may not be familiar to all. This idea of regeneration or rebirth, if you will, that's how you hear about that sometimes in conversations. And the renewing are brought about by the Holy Spirit who initiates and guides that change of heart from within us, transforming us into that new creation in Christ. We can't do it on our own. It wasn't intended that we would. One of the ways this inner change, this inner cleansing is symbolized, it might help you understand, is in Christian baptism. Now, baptism symbolizes a cleansing, if you will. The individual goes under the water and comes back up to the beginnings of a new and changed life. Only possible as the Holy Spirit initiates and does that work of, here's another word, the work of sanctification. You read that in God's word. Sanctification is the ongoing change or transformation in the life of the believer. You're down and you're washed, symbolizing the new beginning, the new life that you're about to enter into. It's God the Father, our divine creator, Jesus the Savior, and the Holy Spirit, God's continual presence with us to perpetuate and continue to guide us in that changed life, to guide us in his purpose and his plan. Change in the Christian's life should be evident and should be ongoing. So we see that ongoing transformation in the lives of those that we encounter in God's word, don't we? All you got to do is open any book in the Bible and you'll see the transformation. There was a place they started and there is a place now that they're going. We see it evident in the life of Titus and in the life of Paul and it should be evident in us. Again, the verse states, Jesus saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus paid our debt. And then through him, the Holy Spirit would be poured out richly, abundantly, without reservation, providing all that we need to live. Not perfect lives, yet lives continually transforming, continually being sanctified, growing closer to our Lord and Savior, all for the glory of God. Paul's words again. God did this so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So to be justified is to be made right with God. Jesus makes us right through his death with God. And so Paul says we become heirs with full access to this rich life that God promised. Does that mean I'll have everything? No, but it means my experience, my heart will be changed and my emotions will have a different motive moving forward, even to eternal life, which we are assured God's faithful people will receive when they believe. And let me encourage you, that life doesn't start at death. It starts at rebirth. It starts when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So the good news is that our faith places great hope in the future. And our future calls us to take the present very seriously. And our future hope renews our strength. It changes our attitude, even amid today's hurts and failures and frustrations and wrongs. So we respond now to God's grace in verse 8. Paul ends by instruct, instructing Titus to insist on these things. These are not options. He says, insist 
on these things. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. When Paul writes that the saving is trustworthy, he is emphasizing the certainty of God's grace in and through Christ that he describes in all of the book, really, in the previous verses. So it tells me that there was no question in Paul's mind. He didn't have any questions about God's goodness and God's love and God's saving ability. And if there was no question in Paul's mind, there can be continued hope, certainty in that hope in our minds as well. It should be lived out, though, and affirmed in the believer's life so that those who have experienced this grace, those who have accepted the Lord as their Savior, will now make every effort to continually do good works. That's about relationships, isn't it? Doing those good works. Good works are not the cause, but necessarily the fruit of our salvation. It is what we do as that change begins to occur. So what does Titus teach us in these verses, chapter 3, 1 through 8? Teaches us to be in right relationship with God and others so that through humility, we who are being transformed are also being transforming agents in the places that we work, in the places that we live, in the places that we go to school, in the places that we play, wherever we are. So imagine a community where people lived like they were truly being transformed. Imagine a community where people lived always moving toward better on the timeline of change. Imagine the changed individual as we started. And what happens when an individual changes? It impacts those around us. So imagine the changed relationships. Imagine the changed community when we live as Paul has described. What would authentic community look like if we all came to Christ for salvation? if we followed Jesus, if we were transformed through and by his spirit, and if we were committed to God's mission to go and make disciples. When we take Christ and scripture seriously, lives, families, and communities are transformed. So Titus encourages us believers to be the agents of that positive change in our communities. Through sharing God's word as well as through acts of love and kindness, reflecting God's grace, transforming the communities and the world around us, where we live, where we work, where we go to school, and where we play. So we must ask the question, where are you in your relationship with Christ this morning? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Is there a nudge? Is the Holy Spirit nudging you, even this morning, to take that step of faith and become heirs with him? Not heirs of things, but heirs of a life, a life that starts anew and fresh the moment you make that decision. Are you surrendered to him, allowing him to empower you, allowing him to give you wisdom? And maybe you have. What's the next step on your journey? What's the next thing that God is calling you to do? As you step out in faith and you reflect that loving kindness, goodness to those around you. I'm going to pray for us as we close this morning. I'm going to ask you to consider those two questions. Where is God leading you? Is it to say yes? Is it to a next step? Would you join me? 
Lord, we thank you and we ask your blessings this morning. We thank you for the work that you did on the cross and for how you guide and direct us each and every step of the way. You don't leave us alone in this world, in this place, in this time, in our lives. You join us and you guide us on that path. Your Holy Spirit works within us. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. And if there's anybody here this morning, Lord, who would make that decision for the first time, even to ask the question, what does it mean? What does it look like? Who are you? These are questions that you are big enough to answer. So Lord, we ask that those would be present now, that you would, that you would nudge those hearts and bring those people um, to a place of deeper understanding. We love you, Lord, and we must lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.